0: So, our uh, reading for tonight is related to uh, the confession readings that we read uh, earlier on. Uh, As John uh, talked about, we are sort of happening to come to a place in the confession that matches up with the Advent season. uh, And that's a little bit by intention. Uh, And so, we come uh, tonight really talking about uh, the... um, uh, Sorry, I have the wrong bulletin here in front of me here. Uh, i got to make sure I get these right. Uh, we're coming and talking about the Incarnation. And so I picked uh, two classic passages from the letter of Paul to the Colossians, which talk about the Incarnation. Uh, so if you turn your bulletins, that's on page six, uh, starting in, and I'll be reading from two different parts uh, from the Colossians. I'll be reading um, from chapter one, starting in verse nine, uh, and then jumping forward to chapter two uh, in verse eight. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See to it that no one ends now in chapter two. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. who raised him from the dead? And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. So we're going to be looking at uh, what might be called doctrinal issues tonight, uh, looking at the Trinity in particular, uh, and especially the second person of the Trinity, uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, And so before I even start in on some of this doctrinal stuff, I want to talk a little bit about just how we should think about doctrine and thinking uh, overall. Uh, There's probably a lot of people in the church worldwide and uh, in the U.S. who would kind of put a wedge between doctrine and practice. And they would say, well, you know, we're not one of those doctrinal churches. We just like to get out and do stuff and really help people and, and so on. Uh, and uh, then you might have other churches that are like, well, we're just doctrinal, and uh, that's really what's important. And those churches that are out there doing stuff, uh, they're, uh, you know, they're sort of uh, watering down things. If you notice at the beginning of this passage, Paul doesn't allow any such split. Right? So he talks, he's talking in his prayer to them, or his prayer for them. He talks a lot about how they walk. So in verse 10, he talks about, pray that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in good works. Uh, and so on. And so he's talking about actions. He's talking about good things happening. Uh, And so certainly there is that aspect. At the same time, mixed in with the same passages, uh, there's all these things about knowledge uh, and and growing in understanding. So if you look in verse 9, he says, we pray for you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you would have wisdom and understanding. And then in verse 10, that you would be increasing Uh, in the knowledge of God. And then jumping down to chapter 2 in the passage that we read uh, in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Uh, And then he goes on to talk about some more doctrine. He talks about the nature of Christ uh, and who Christ is. And so Paul is very, very concerned. They have right thinking about Christ. Uh, And he's not saying that it's an either-or, that you pick either you're going to be a doctrinal church or a doctrinal person or you're going to be a person of action. He's actually saying uh, that our actions and our power are really founded on our knowledge of God and on our strength of God. And there's really two ways in which you could say that that comes about. Uh, One is sort of in a negative way. Uh, He's saying in chapter 2 there that you could be taken captive by empty philosophies and so if you don't think clearly you can actually be steered into some false path and maybe the things you end up doing are actually completely counterproductive uh, and against the will of God Uh, and so there's a negative side in in which we would say that good teaching or good doctrine protects us from being led into some kind of cult or led into some kind of empty tradition or led into uh, all kinds of bad directions that we might go that, that Paul mentions here. Uh, but it's, it, it, the understanding of the word, using our minds and thinking clearly, uh, has the ability uh, to actually guide us and, and, and protect us from those things. Uh, but there's also a positive side, which is that Paul equates uh, the knowledge of God with being strengthened with power. So he says, I pray that you would be increasing in the knowledge of God, comma, being strengthened with all power. And I don't think it's an accident that those two phrases are next to each other. But, uh, if you really try to do a lot of good in the world, you are going to run out of steam uh, very quickly unless you really have an anchor in God, unless you really have a sense that I know what God has called me to do and he is my certain hope, my sure foundation and I'm not worried about what slings and arrows people might throw at me. Uh, if you try to do good work in your own strength, you will quickly, and many of you probably have had the experience of being burnout. out, where you're doing things and you're not being thanked for it, you're not being appreciated, people are actually saying what you're doing is bad, not good, and you can feel burned out. The, the antidote in scripture always for uh, burnout is having a firm foundation, as we sang in the song just a minute ago, uh, having an anchor uh, in the, the nature of God himself and understanding him. And that's a cognitive activity, that's using our minds to say, I know whom I believed and I... I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've entrusted him until that last day, uh, that we have that confidence in God. So the power to do good work actually rests in the knowledge of the increasing knowledge of God that we know who we are serving and we know what he's called us to do and we know who he is. Uh, So with that all in mind then, uh, let's just walk through a little bit of of what I would call, again, classic doctrine of the Trinity. I know that uh, Pastor Bianco did a little bit on the Trinity uh, earlier uh, this year. So some of this may be review, uh, but it's worth repeating. So let me just sort of give that a little bit of a formula here. So first of all, uh, the Christian teaching is what we would call the Trinity, uh, which the formula is that there is one God in three persons. It's not three persons uh, separate, competing with each other. But as we uh, looked in the confession, one substance, and one could say one one will. They never disagree with each other. So it's not as though they are fighting each other or anything like that. Uh, but in fact, it is one God, three persons. Now, sometimes the best way to understand that is in understanding what it's not. And so uh, I'll list here just a few of the classic, what are sometimes called heresies, or you could simply say wrong teaching. Uh, and lots of times you'll talk with Christians who've been Christians for a really long time, uh, and they actually would explain the Trinity, and they explain it in one of these heretical ways. Uh, And uh, um, so we often fall into these without even thinking about it. So uh, one is called modalism. Uh, Modalism would say that God is one person, and he's just changing his job description from time to time, doing one thing or then another. And so sometimes you'll hear people try to explain the Trinity, and they'll say something like, well, I, uh, Dave Snoke, uh, am a father to my children, and I'm also a professor teaching people, uh, and I'm also a son to my father, uh, so I'm sort of all three at once, so isn't that like the Trinity? No, that's that's a really, that's just wrong, <laughs> okay? Uh, one way you can see why that's wrong is because Jesus prayed to the Father and talked about the loving relationship that he had with the father. Now, if I was to stand here and say, "Well, David Snoke the son has a really loving relationship with David Snoke the father, and we talk to each other all the time," you would you would want to lock me up, right? <laughs> you would say, "Okay, split personality. One person. Well, you know, Dave Snoke is three people. This is bad. Okay. Um, so I am not a Trinity, uh, and, uh, and I'm also not insane. So that uh, would not apply. Uh, that would not be a good model of the Trinity. On the other hand, as I said." There is relationship in the Trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, And we have a book that used to be on the book table. I'm not sure if it's still in the book table. It's probably out here if it's not on the one on Sunday morning called Delighting in the Trinity. And one of the things that he emphasizes is that God is intrinsically loved precisely because he's a Trinity. Did you ever think about that? That if God was a monad, he was just one person, then who would he be loving for all eternity? Uh, before he created the, uh, the world. He would just be sitting there. Uh, but in fact, there is a loving relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. God is intrinsically relational and he is intrinsically loving even before he ever created any people. Uh, that's part of who he is. Uh, now, another, just sort of going through some of these classic wrong views, uh, Arianism would say that Jesus is a creation. Uh, that he wasn't God. uh, And so there's different versions of this. Uh, So it's called Arianism. That's an old term. Uh, The Mormons uh, are Arians. They would say that Jesus was a man who was then made into God uh, at at some point. Uh, And the Jehovah's Witnesses would be another type of Arian who would say that Jesus was created as sort of an angelic being uh, or something like that. Uh, Both of those Uh, would put Jesus at a lower level. And, of course, the problem with that is we are absolutely commanded that we do not worship anyone but God alone. And so if you're in one of those uh, religions, you would be saying we're worshiping Jesus who is not God, and so we are committing idolatry. Uh, And that is, of course, not what Scripture teaches us. And as we saw here in Colossians, Paul goes out of his way to say, in him the fullness, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell he is the agent of creation. By him, all things were created. Um, he did not, he was not created, but he, in fact, created all things, it says uh, there in verse 16. Uh, and um, in verse 15, it says, he is the image of the invisible God, uh, that he is uh, really, we could say, the, the personal message, uh, the direct relationship to God, and we'll come back and talk about that. Okay, just running through other errors then. Okay, the last one I'll I'll mention then is tritheism, just a type of polytheism. A lot of times um, Muslims or other people in other religions think that this is what Christians believe. They think that we would actually say there are three gods uh, and with three competing wills. Uh, And so uh, that would be classic polytheism and that is not Christianity. And the difference is that in a Tri theistic system, you would basically have three different wills competing and uh, one winning at one time, you know, sort of like yin yang philosophy would be two, and sometimes yin wins and, uh, wins, and sometimes yang wins, uh, and, uh, and they're fighting each other. Uh, in the Trinity, there is never a disagreement, and so Jesus said, uh, I only do what the Father tells me to do. There is absolutely no disagreement between them uh, whatsoever. And that's really hard for us to conceive. Um, because, you know, for us, uh, with our our limited minds, we're always in disagreeing with other people all the time. And so it's hard to imagine a relationship in which you absolutely agree uh, all the time, and yet that's what we're told about, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just continuing on with sort of some of the basic points here, uh, it's important to keep in mind that all three are persons, Uh, that the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it. And I can't tell you how often I hear uh, Christians Again, sort of sliding into heresy uh, accidentally and saying, uh, I really, you know, I I love the Holy Spirit. I want it to fill me up. Uh, As if the Holy Spirit was like a fluid and you're being, you have a fluid sort of being poured into you or something like that. Um, The Holy Spirit is a person. There's a loving relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, And so we properly refer to the Holy Spirit as he, uh, not it. Now, sometimes we could say, well, I have really great feelings when I feel close to the Holy Spirit and that feeling I might call an it, uh, but the Holy Spirit himself is a person and he interacts, he talks to Jesus, there's a relationship there uh, and so on. Okay, now moving on, thinking about Jesus as we focus in on Jesus then uh, for the Christmas season, Jesus, the formula is one person, two natures. So Jesus is one person, so He had both a divine nature, he was God in the flesh, he was God from all eternity, and then he added to himself a human body when he came to earth. So he always was God, he didn't stop being God, he didn't remove his divine nature, but he added to himself a body, and he still has that body. Uh, He now has a physical body, he's resurrected, and he still has that body uh, even to this point. Um, And so the formula that we have here in the passage in front of us is that all of the fullness of God dwells uh, bodily uh, in Jesus. In verse 19 there, chapter 1, for in him all the fullness of God uh, was pleased to dwell. Um, So here we have to be careful. There's one Jesus, one person. And so you don't have a situation where it'd be like, well, divine Jesus, what do you think? Well, I don't know, physical Jesus, what do you think? Uh, It wouldn't be... Two Jesus is talking to each other, but he is one person who has both a divine nature and a human nature. Now, we could say that is similar to us, in that you would say uh, that we have a spiritual nature and we have a physical nature, uh, and we are yet one person. My body could be destroyed, and yet my spirit still be with God in heaven. Jesus, in his spirit, was divine from all eternity. We're not, but there's still a similarity in that we both have a spiritual nature, which is different from our physical nature. Finally, on that, our mental capacity is actually part of the physical nature. So, when Jesus added to himself a body, he had a human mind which was constrained by time, for example. So, he no longer saw everything in his flesh, he did not see everything simultaneously, but he had to live in time just like anybody else. Uh, And he um, uh, was restricted in his thinking, again, in the physical side, even though. In his divine nature, uh, of course, he still had, you could say, could tap into all of that omniscience and all that omnipotence. And from time to time, of course, he did that uh, in the scriptures. Uh, So just before I uh, move on uh, to talking about the nature of Jesus a little bit more in focus, I just want to talk about thinking about the Trinity as a whole. A lot of times people talk about it as a mystery. And we have to be careful with this because there's different types of mystery. Uh, One type of mystery, you could say simply when you have a lack of knowledge, when you don't know all the information. Uh, So if there's a uh, murder mystery, you can assume somebody killed this person, but I don't know who. So that's a type of mystery. Uh, And there's another type of mystery in which you could say someone is presenting nonsense and trying to get you to believe it. Okay, so if somebody said, well, God is like the sound of one hand clapping, Uh, That sounds mysterious, but it's actually just nonsense, right? It doesn't mean anything, because clapping is defined as an action done by two hands. And so you're just sort of putting words together that don't make any sense. Um, The mystery of the Trinity is of the first type, in that there's a lot of things we don't know about God. We, We really have no experience. There was no other examples of Trinitarian gods in the universe. There's one God... Uh, And that God is a trinity. We don't have any other examples. So all of our thinking breaks down as to how we would think about that. And for that matter, even just thinking about eternity, thinking about God never having a beginning, is sort of a mind-blowing, inconceivable thing. It's nothing contradictory or nonsensical about it. It's just our minds can't grasp it. And so there's many things about the trinity that are mysterious in the sense of they're just beyond our experience, that we cannot imagine being a trinity, Uh, we can't imagine a lot of things about how uh, God works. On the other hand, uh, it's not a self-contradiction, it's not like we're contradicting ourselves and saying, well, God is one, no, he's not one, uh, or is he? Uh, It's not as though we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth, we're saying that God is one in this way, and he's three in a different way. He's one uh, God, three persons, and Jesus is one person, two natures. So we're not saying, well, he's both one, he's not one, he's three, but he's not three. That would just be bare contradiction. That's not what we're talking about with the Trinity. And so there's much that we don't understand about God, and much we never will understand even in heaven. We will never be able to be understand what it means to be an infinite being. Uh, and yet, uh, there's nothing illogical or irrational about it. Okay, so let me focus in then and really focus in on Jesus then uh, and looking at this passage here. Uh, how should we think about Jesus? Uh, there are um, three things I want uh, to really uh, pull out of this. Uh, the first is, well, you could say the exalted nature of Jesus, that he is divine and that he is the king. And Paul goes out of his way in this passage to just list like every possible Exalted thing you could say about Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, when it says firstborn, it doesn't mean He didn't exist before He was born. It's simply, you could say, a title like the firstborn Son, that He is the most honored one. Uh, All things were created by Him Uh, dominions, rulers, authorities, all of those were created by Him and for Him, for His pleasure. He is before all things, He existed before all other things existed and actually in all things are sustained by Him, by Jesus, by the Son. The second person of the Trinity is the agent of creation and of sustaining things. Do you ever think about that, that if He was to stop sustaining us, we would just vanish. It's not just that He set up the world like a clock and then left and let it go, but it says that everything is upheld by Him all things in Him hold together. So that he was to cease to do that, we would just vanish in a puff of smoke. Uh, He is the firstborn from the dead, and everything is preeminent. Uh, And uh, moving on then, uh, in verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Uh, And he is the head of all rule and authority. So this is what I call the exalted picture of Jesus. Uh, I think it's really important that we not forget this. Um, there was a movement, maybe this dates me a little bit, there was a movement in the 70s and 80s, which you could call sort of Jesus is my buddy, a movement of, well, you know, some of the people my age are nodding and saying, oh, I remember the Jesus is my buddy thing, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and um, that we're getting at a truth, which is, uh, I'm going to talk about next, which is that Jesus does draw near to us, that he is close to us. And yet, it's not just like, you know, he's just some guy. He is the exalted king over all creation, and we can never lose sight of that. He is the exalted one. Uh, But, again, in one of these both ends, the Bible doesn't just leave us with that picture. It also gives us the picture of Jesus drawing near to us. And so I think in your additional scriptures, I'm not going to read this, but um, I think, uh, yeah, there it is. Uh, Hebrews 4. It talks about Jesus being the high priest who is able to sympathize with us because he is like us uh, in so many ways. He's been tempted like we are. Uh, He's lived through suffering uh, as we have. And this is, I think, really worth dwelling on, especially at the Christmas season when we think about Jesus uh, and his birth. Uh, A lot of times we have just sort of this nice vision of Jesus in a little manger uh, and What's a manger, right? A manger is a thing that you put a baby Jesus in, right? Like we don't really know what that word manger means. Um, um, literally means is, is a, a cattle trough, you know, a, 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 a thing for putting food in for the animals. And so actually the point of saying he was born in a manger is to say his parents were so poor, he was born in a barn and they had no bed for him. So they put him in the hay uh, thing to feed, you know, that was being used to feed the cows, uh, that he was born in extremely humble uh, circumstances. And actually, I read an article recently that said, you know, we always talk about Joseph being a carpenter. Uh, the actual uh, word there, the, uh, it refers to a builder. And actually, a builder could refer in those days to a number of different types of job, not necessarily somebody who made nicely plain tables. It might just be, simply be a day laborer who was paid to pile up rocks and make walls. Uh, and things like that. So this is not necessarily uh, this highly skilled uh, labor, uh, but actually it could be the lowest of the low, somebody who's simply a day laborer uh, being called in to do odd jobs. Um, he also um, uh, suffered uh, like us. He was tempted like us, uh, tempted to sin, uh, and yet never did sin. He also suffered like us, and I think this is important to, to keep in mind uh, For us, for a lot of us here, um, he didn't live every possible life. There's billions of people on the earth. He didn't live every possible life that anybody could ever live. Um, uh, And yet, he experienced all the same types of things that are common to people. And one of them, I would say, is the idea of unfulfilled desires. Um, That all of us have longings for things that we're not going to get in this life. Uh, Unfulfilled desires like wanting to be married and not being married. Uh, wanting to live a long life. Uh, Jesus' life was cut off. And one of the Psalms talk about that, that his children, he never had children, right? He never uh, was able to experience that. And I'm sure in the flesh he would have really enjoyed that. Uh, and yet he was cut off. He didn't get married. Uh, he didn't have a long life. Uh, he also endured false accusations and gossip. Uh, friends turning against him. Uh, all of the kind of longings of our heart are things that Jesus understands and can relate to because he had many desires in the flesh that were unfulfilled uh, and so in that sense he is uh, he is a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us and you could say in a sense he's like a buddy in that way in that he's someone you can talk to who you can, who can believe will understand you and be able to relate uh, and not say you know, you know just get your act together um, so my third point is actually to sort of bring these two together, uh, that the passage talks about Jesus being joined to us, uh, that as God and man, he is joined to us. And if you ever thought about this, uh, so this is a teaching that we teach all the time in this church, the idea of union with Christ. And it talks about that in this passage, uh, in talking about him being the head of the church. And he, the church is called the body And so the picture that is given in scripture is that the church is a body of which Christ is part and he is the the head or the brain. And that really is a picture of an intimate union, right? A head can't live without a body and a body can't live without a head. They are sealed together. And again, you are one person. You are united together as all these organs, but you are one person. And so it's saying our relationship to Jesus when we come to him in faith is like that. That his, he is welded together to us the way a head is to a body. Uh, and that he is intimately related to us that way. Uh, now if you think about that, uh, he can't do that unless he's both God and man. Um, he has to be God because only God could indwell billions of people. No one person, I could not say, I live in your heart. Right, uh, You know, there's Don McMillan uh, and I am so great that I can actually I- embody myself in the heart of Don McMillan. That would be really weird, right? <laughs> um, no person can do that. Only God can indwell a human heart and yet still leave that person alive uh, and, and, uh, and kicking. Um, on the other hand, for him to be united to us, he has to be like us. He has to be one with us. Uh, In the flesh. And so the Bible is full of pictures of how he shared our blood, he shared our humanity, and his atonement, his death, uh, could only be valid if he shared in our humanity so that it was literally our death, uh, so that we essentially died with him. Uh, And uh, so it is crucial that he be both God and man so that we could be united to him, all of us together, as one body united to him who is the head. Okay, um, let me finish then with just why we should think about Jesus. Um, Maybe that doesn't seem an obvious question to you. Uh, I said all this about doctrine. I talked about all the right things to think about him. I talked about his exalted nature. That leads us to trusting in him that he has the power to take care of us. Uh, I talked about his human nature and how that should lead us to feel like he can sympathize with us and relate to us. Uh, But there's another aspect I want to bring out just in these last couple minutes, uh, which is this phrase that he is the image of the invisible God. Um, Now, in one level, uh, we can never know God fully, even in heaven. He's infinite in his knowledge and wisdom. We will tap into that, but we will never know everything that God knows because his knowledge is infinite and ours isn't. Um, And so these words, infinite, eternal, inscrutable, are used for God, Uh, As part of that, then, in the uh, Bible, you see sometimes phrases that say that uh, no one can see God and live. No one can truly see his face. It's sort of a way of saying that we cannot ever really grasp fully uh, who God is. On the other hand, in the New Testament, we see here that Jesus is called the image of God. So we're forbidden in the Ten Commandments to make images of God, uh, to make whether they're uh, idols or uh, whether they're uh, some kind of painting or whatever because no painting could ever be an image of God. It could never uh, live up to all the fullness of God and so we're forbidden in the second commandment from doing that and yet it says that Jesus is the image of God and one way to think about that is to say uh, any idol, any picture, any painting would be inadequate to really express who God is And only a person in the person of Jesus is even close to adequate to be the communication of God, uh, to to represent him. And so there's a number of different pictures for this about who Jesus is. Uh, He is called in the Gospel of John, the word of God. And again, that picture of communication that we're learning about who he is. Uh, Here he's called the image of God, sort of seeing uh, who he is. Uh, In general, in scripture, Uh, The Bible puts our focus, if we want to focus on God, uh, puts it on the person of Jesus. So the Father, we are told, no one can see uh, me and live. Uh, And the Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes to to work in our hearts. Uh, But our focus, if we're going to focus uh, on God, is on the person of Christ. And so it's not as though he's like more important in the Trinity. All three are equally important. All three are, are are equally divine. And yet there's something in Scripture that puts our focus more on Jesus uh, than on the Father or the Spirit. Uh, they are working to draw our attention to Jesus and to exalt Him as our King uh, and who is related to us. Uh, and if you think about how incredible that is, that the God of all eternity takes on human flesh, it's He, he didn't do that for trees. He didn't do that for cattle. He has really raised us up uh, in importance in adopting our flesh to be uh, united to. Now, the last thing I want to say is, it's not just when you think about Jesus, you know, this is how you should think about him, but actually we're positively commanded to adore Jesus, to worship him. Uh, And I think about all of the hero worship that we have in the world, and it's not something new. It goes back thousands of years, right? So we've had military leaders and people adore them and they worship them. Uh, we've had Caesars and, and empire leaders. Uh, we've had great artists and musicians. There's <coughs> teenage girls who put up posters of you know, musicians on their walls or people who put up posters of sports uh, athletes and so on. Uh, and I think in our day, in our culture, You get to a certain age and we just react cynically against that entirely. And so the idea of hero worship seems like that's a childish thing, uh, you know, or maybe, you know, some sort of an uneducated thing, you know, hero worship. And anybody who's sort of sophisticated should have sort of a cynical attitude and not engage in hero worship. I I think that's the way our culture goes in a lot of ways. And we always get that way because when we worship people, we feel burned, right? This person—it turned out, you know—they were supposed to be so great, and then we found out about their dark side. Uh, we found about all these things, and maybe that's the one thing that's different in our modern culture, which is that we're much better at ferreting out information about what somebody did 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, in the past, if you were the emperor, you could pretty much release the story that you wanted people to know, and people didn't have a lot of other sources of, of information. But what I want to say is, instead of Uh, looking at that and saying okay well when you worship these heroes they always let you down and rejecting the idea of hero worship instead say well maybe actually we were made to worship a hero and we're putting that worship in the wrong place so that we're actually worshiping people when we should be worshiping Christ and so Christ is the ultimate hero he's the ultimate king he's the ultimate perfect one Uh, he's the ultimate savior rescuer he is the ultimate superhero Uh, who can save billions of people and conquer all the evil forces of the world. Uh, Think about how many superhero movies we have. Um, All of them, in some ways you could say, are our longing for there really to be a true hero. And we don't believe it could ever exist in reality after we leave our teenage years. And so we go into fantasy and we say, well, in fantasy there can be real heroes, but of course they aren't real in real life. But what if Jesus really is the ultimate superhero uh, who really does exist And that longing that we have for there to be a hero was put there by God and it's actually a good thing. And so I would say positively um, engage in some hero worship during the Christmas season. Uh, Adore this person of Jesus Uh, because we were actually made to be worshipers of a hero figure. Uh, And Jesus is the only hero figure that will satisfy. Every other hero figure is gonna let you down at some point or another, but Jesus will not let you down. And we are called to uh, come before him and exalt him. Let's pray.